Hey there. Welcome to What Happens Next with Ben and Philip. I'm Ben. And I'm Philip. And, mate, I am here tonight, beer in hand, to ask you about financial advice. You're asking me? Well, asking you about any particular financial advisors that you have used in the past. Because as I understand it, your dad's a financial advisor, isn't he? Yes, recently retired, but I certainly wouldn't recommend him. (laughs) So, as your experience as the son of a financial advisor, does that mean that you tend to be quite savvy when it comes to financial advice? Or is one of those things like you hear the kids of psychologists have messed up or whatever, because you often reject what your parents do? Which way do you skew? Uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm probably more like the former where you sort of, you hear so much about it, and you, you know what you should do, but you look at your parents and you think, I don't want to be like them. I want to forge my own path. So, you just don't take any of it on board at all. That being said, I think the cautiousness of it all has probably rubbed off on me then. You know, I don't take all my life savings and put it on black at the casino or chuck it into a speculative tech stock or something, but um, (laughs) maybe I should have. Well, the reason I asked the question is I've read several books over the years, several- They're like self-help books, but they're self-finance books. Basically, books giving advice on how to look after your finances. I tend to start these books and then very quickly abandon them because the advice is either too generic- it's too American, as most of those books are authored in America. Or I read the books and I think to myself, oh, great, it's too late. Because the advice they give is something about how compound interest is awesome if you take advantage of it when you're 12. Yeah, start saving. Start putting money in your kid's bank account when they're born. Yeah. And by the time they're 18, they can buy a house. Then it's too little, too late. Yeah. So, just recently, I discovered this book. And apparently, everyone in the world knows about it except for me. It's in a book called The Barefoot Investor by a financial advisor slash author slash TV radio commentator named Scott Pape. He's a guy in his mid-late 30s now, and he's been preaching this way of basically looking after your finances for the last six, eight years. I think his book's about three years old, The Barefoot Investor. And- You know, when you discover something for the first time, and then once you discover that, you start seeing it everywhere. So, you suddenly become aware that other people are reading it, or you see signage, or you recognize his face on the internet or on TV. So, this guy I'd never noticed before. I read the book, and suddenly he's everywhere. And I discovered the book when I was overseas on holiday, and I bought it as a Kindle, and I was reading it on a lounge on the beach because the only time I've ever got energy to do anything involving finances is weirdly on a holiday because ordinarily it's just too dry to absorb. Yeah, or it's it's when when you've got a lot of time in your hands and you can almost treat it like a little project, something that I'm going to be sitting by this pool for the next five days and I can just, I know I've got time to smash through this book and and get a lot out of it, yeah. And holidays are always reflective. You're often likely to revisit goals, ambitions, look back at the last year, look ahead for the next year, maybe kind of, in this case, to a reconciliation of your finances. Yeah. Basically take stock. Mm. So- I started reading this on a an armchair on the beach, and then I realized that my two brothers-in-law were also reading the same book. At the same time. Yeah. So, like I said, suddenly when you discover something, everyone else is suddenly using the same book or reading the same book at the same time. And are they all at a similar life point as you? So, you were probably getting similar benefits from the book or- Yeah, weirdly, yes and no. One of them is similar to me, similar age, a couple of young kids. The other one is no kids and a bit younger than me. But 
I guess, old enough to be thinking about trying to invest money and be wise with it. And so, anyway, I'm now doing it. But the reason why this book is so good, and this, I guess, is more tailored to our Australian listeners than overseas listeners, is that the advice in the book is very specific. So, rather than just give generic advice about how you should put 20% of your income into super or 15% into savings and something as broad as that, or talking about the benefits of property. It talks about that as well, but also talks about specifically choosing this particular brand of credit card and this particular model of savings account and this specific superannuation fund. It's an exact blueprint you can follow. Very prescriptive. Yeah. And it takes a lot of that hard work out of it for you. And often that is the probably for the people who aren't 100% committed to changing their ways, that would be the easiest way to excuse yourself. Oh, it's all too hard. I went to the bank and, you know, there's such, I went on the internet and there's just so many different credit cards. There's so many different home loans. Oh, it's all too hard. I just chose that one and I think it's fine or, you know. Yeah, exactly. And then I didn't really follow through because I couldn't work out which one to do or yeah. which one to put my money in or something. Yeah. So, but making it so prescriptive, it sort of dumbs it down in a way, but it, it sort of makes it sort of idiot proof. 100%. And what's also encouraging about the book is that it gives advice so that even if you're 55, which I'm not, but let's say 55, you're closer to retirement than not. It gives you advice as to how to basically make through a Hail Mary to try and save yourself with, say, 10 years more of work to ensure you can retire comfortably Mm. or reasonably in retirement, which is great because how many people can pick these books up and think, well, it's too little too late. And this one's like, okay, if you're 55, this is how you can retire at 65 with 60K a year indefinitely without dramatically curbing your lifestyle too much in the next 10 years. Sounds like it is quite detailed and he's obviously put a lot of effort into it and he's trying to help. Do you discuss this sort of stuff with your beloved, like finances and investment? We have at various stages, but- Yeah. It's funny. I think there's always one person in each relationship who's more interested than the other. And I think- Yeah, totally. It's often a case that it's harder to bring the other person to the table when something is dry and boring as finances. And also, it can seem like you're being a killjoy in not enjoying the present because of a savings plan, a budget. If you discuss that stuff and thus- you can't enjoy now because you're saving for the future. This book's quite good because it doesn't actually prescribe that you avoid having takeaway coffees and craft beers. It says, look, live your life normally, but follow these broad principles and try and find your savings, not by avoiding avocado, but some more substantial savings like administration fees and super funds or always putting away 5% of your savings with compound interest. And the money you save will well and truly negate avoiding avocado, smashed avocado on toast, coffee and craft beer. Yeah. So, it's looking at a much bigger picture and then giving you a particular percentage and when to put that money in a particular bank and how that will look in 10 years from now. Yeah. And it's all that sort of not just living for the moment, you know, small, simple decisions you can make now can have huge compound benefits 40 years down the track when you want to retire and you see it on the superannuation ads you know this person had the same amount of money in their super they they invested in this account that account and it's like when they retired one had 60 grand more it's like yeah who wouldn't want 60 grand more at any point in their life exactly so what happens next how would you convince someone in a relationship or even if they're single 
to adhere to some of this advice. Let's just say they take on the advice of this particular book, The Barefoot Investor by Scott Pape. How would you coax someone into thinking more wisely about their finances, regardless of whether they earn $10,000 per year or a million? I think there's two ways. You could keep track of of your expenditure for like say a four-week period without them knowing and then at the end of that four weeks ago, do you realize in the last four weeks you have spent or we have spent, you know, $10,000 on eating out instead of eating at home? And then a separate example saying if we had eaten out, you know, if we'd only spent $1,000 eating out in that period, would still have meant, you know, one nice meal per week and with the extra money, we'd put it on this account or put it against our mortgage and at the end of five-year period, we would have X amount, you know, like something like that where you could sort of say by making a positive move now with the saving or the spending and coupled with savvy investment or or savvy saving in a certain way, look at the benefits that would flow. And so, I think that would be your entree into it rather than saying, just read this book. See, I've tried that approach in the past and it didn't work because it can come across as being a little bit sneaky or like you're building a case in court, you're mounting the evidence. Yeah, maybe that's a lawyer in me. Yeah, so what I did was I actually presented the book and said, look, I browse through a lot of these books. I don't get past the first chapter quite often. I started Rich Dad, Poor Dad three times and never got past page 50. However, I did finish this book. I did enjoy this book. It's the first book I've thought, oh, I'm actually going to follow this particular advice. So, do me a favor and read this book. And if you don't agree with it, you don't like it, no dramas, no harm, no foul. But just give it a chance because it's the first book I've read where I actually thought, yep, this can apply to us. Yeah, but there are a lot of people who, for example, always trade in their car. They don't sell it privately because they can't be bothered even though you could get 10% more selling it privately or can't be bothered to speak to a mortgage broker about possibly changing their home loan, getting a better deal just because they can't be bothered and they have to change credit cards and have to change all their direct deposits or direct debits and stuff. And there are some people who are like that and it's hard to sort of explain to them the benefits of shopping around or the benefits of making actual changes, I suppose. But would you spend every six months changing mortgages or do you tend to stick with the same bank for a couple of years? Yeah, no, I'll quite happily shop around. And I think the last time I did that, the break costs were well outweighed by the savings within the first few months of the mortgage, yeah. you know. I think they just rely, I think a lot of organisations, memberships, subscriptions, mortgages, mobile plans, internet, they create what they call internally a sticky experience. Yeah. And they try and sell as a positive, like you want to stay with them, but- the negative inflection of sticky, the negative definition of sticky means more like ball and chain or feeding concrete. Yeah. Where it's easier to bitch than switch. So yeah. you tend to stay with that particular yeah. organization. And it's also difficult. And it's so good that the government got rid of those freaking break fees where they made it prohibitive to leave, which is outrageous. Mm. And now it's much less costly to pull up stumps and just go to a different bank. Yeah. I myself, unfortunately, don't do a lot of that shopping around. It always seems like such an onerous process to get the pay slips together and the form and so on and so on and so on. But I think, as you say, the cost savings are so great. 
if you wipe your time. Like, yeah, that can be it's huge. Worth if it. you, you know, if you're paying half percent more on your mortgage than you have to, if your mortgage is a decent enough size, that's that's a huge amount of money. And it's like hundreds of dollars per month. And like the Barefoot Investor says, that's anything like that's going to be dramatically outweighed by whether or not you have a takeaway coffee three days a week instead of five or something. So what happens next is I think that people should do something that Barefoot Investor suggests. And even if you don't follow the advice of Barefoot Investor, what you should do is he has date nights. Six date nights where you go out with your partner. You have to go out for a date night. It has to be a dedicated night. You bring your phone or your iPad and then you, on the spot, having both read the book beforehand, you discuss a few points and then on the spot you sign up for a savings account. You sign up to transfer your superannuation. You sign up for a long-term compound interest account, etc. You do it on the date night. Literally, he, you know, he jokes about doing it between entree and May. We're up to date four now. I think there are seven dates in total. But what's really good is that oh, stuff so, happens. So what did you do on Saturday night? It was meant to be Mexican and he strongly advises Mexican and says he wishes he could do Mexican because his wife doesn't like spicy foods, but we had fish instead. So we basically went for coffee first for two hours and then went for a fish dinner after that. Date four, baby. Date night. Yeah, but hang on. What what happened between the coffee and the fish? Did you sign up for a new mortgage or something? We or? signed up for a particular long-term savings account, which is one where you basically get a plastic card, you cut it up. Is this the rainy day money one? Yeah, it's called yeah. the Mojo account. And you save this money, you save three times your salary. And once you get to three times your salary, your combined salary between yourself and your husband or wife or partner. You've you combined, sorry, you combined salary for a month? Or three or? months. So if you earned $1,000 per After month, tax. it's 3000 If you earned $100,000 a month. After tax? After tax. And that money is essentially if you have a major emergency like a death, a divorce, some sort of crisis- it's called your mojo account to, quote, get your mojo back, baby. So, it's um, it's rainy day money if you need it. It's there. It's accessible. It's not tied up in a term deposit or anything like that where you can't access it without break fees. So, you can just get it whenever you want for free. Yeah. But at the same time, it's sitting there. It's earning interest, presumably a small amount of interest. High interest. High interest? Yeah. yeah. It's just ticking over, but you're not adding to it and you're not taking away from it. Once you reach that three-month salary after tax- then you stop putting money into it yeah. and then you start focusing on other things like your mortgage repayments and perhaps a savings account for your kids. So, you kind of just- It's called using a fire extinguisher. You point the fire extinguisher at whatever account requires the cash. So, you point the fire extinguisher at the fire, which is your mojo account, to build it to three-month salary. And then after you've done that, you point it towards your mortgage. All right, so that's my advice for what happens next. Talk to your partner on date night. Interesting. I think we've got some more thinking to do about this one, Benny. We do. We do. All right, topic two for tonight. So I've got good news and bad news, and I'd love to hear your take on this because I'm sure you've got a similar experience. Unfortunately, at our age, many of our friends have recently been breaking up divorces, which is sad. But what's interesting coming out of that are these people who are in their late 30s, 40s on those dating sites like RSVP. Do you know of anyone who's doing that? Do people still use RSVP? Yeah. Well, this is the funny thing. I think there's RSVP and a couple others, but I know that they vary in price between $20 per year and 300 or something. But I know a guy who got divorced, long-term relationship, 10 years. And he went on there and he found out that men generally are so cheap that 
they won't put up the cash to spend even $20 per year on membership for one of these sites, even though they'll happily go out and blow 10 bucks on a craft beer. Yeah, well, that's, I was going to say that's two and a half beers. To find the love of their life, they will only use the free RSVP-esque dating services. And so the women find the men who put up 25 bucks per year are high quality men mm. because they value finding a mate Twenty worth twenty five dollars or more. Yeah, isn't that astounding? It's such a bad reflection on twenty five bucks a year is nothing. I thought you were going to say twenty five bucks a week. But- no, it's nothing. So this guy I know actually met his fiance on the, one of these dating sites. She was a divorcee. He was a divorcee, and they got together. That's great. Yeah. I'm sure it does work. And I think you're right. By paying the extra money, I think it's probably a different psyche for men and that women are probably a bit more discerning. And there's probably, I would expect it proportionally, there'd probably be more women on the more expensive dating site than there will be on the cheap one because women can always get a date. Do you know what I mean? Totally. So, they're like, well, I've been there, done that. I can get a date whenever I want, but I want to meet someone who's actually- I want a good date. I want a good date, yeah. So, I'll pay the bit extra to get the more discerning gentleman who's prepared to fork out the- $25. The $25, bucks, yeah. <laughs> and then you've got the sort of professional matchmaker sites where they actually- Do you know, is it is it Yvonne Allen? Do you no, know no. Yvonne Allen, a matchmaker? Walk me through this. That's the sort of more exclusive, tailored- They're like almost consultants where- they will, uh, I've got no idea how much they cost, sort of, you know, in the thousands. So, it's like seeing a job consultant where they go through your, let's say, personality CV, your traits and so on. Yeah. And they profess to have the expertise to use that human touch to try and find um, you someone. Yeah. And I think that's where you get to where you, one, you can afford it. By then, you would be really sick of the, you're even sick of the $25 a year caliber guys, you know. <laughs> you know, it's funny, isn't it? Like, I think humans, both genders included, are so funny when it comes to cost, right? People go out and blow $180 in a pair of shoes, which they'll wear five times a year. They'll go out and get a new iPhone, which costs twelve, no, $1,400. You know, that ends up being, like that's like spending, I don't know, what, 50 bucks a week or something on an iPhone. They won't spend $200 on meeting the love of their life they would be with forever and ever. Yeah. It's bizarre to me. I mean, yeah, if someone said to you, $200 and I'm going to set you up with a girl who you're really, really compatible with, you will find her attractive. Maybe you're more inclined to find faults when you're paying 200 and you're like, oh, didn't like that freckle below the eye or, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a danger, isn't it? The idea of the service I imagine, not having ever tried this, Phil, but the danger of this I imagine is that you misconstrue the money spent on an expert person finding you someone is that they'll find you the perfect person when their job actually isn't to find you the perfect person, it's to find you the most compatible person. Different thing. Yeah. It's weird. Like this is a broader conversation about money and it relates to our early conversation about budgeting and stuff. But just in the last year, I started buying things and saying, okay, how much does something cost me per day? So let's think of anything you can buy or how much per use and then divide it by the number of days or the number of uses of that product and then work out, is it good value? So, I reckon I could comfortably justify, I don't know if I I couldn't comfortably afford, but I could comfortably justify spending $2,000 per year on a mobile phone because if I think about it, 
I'm using that like throughout the day, yeah. like yeah. every 10 minutes, yeah. right? Now, if I thought about what I've also spent $2,000 on like a camera lens in the past, right? I'd use that for probably 15 minutes a fortnight. So, if you look at the cost per minute of that object and then I go, okay, well, if it really satisfies me in that short period of time, it's worth it. But to be honest, that lens doesn't give me so much satisfaction with my photographs that totally overrides the cost of it. Yeah. And same with like you buy the shoes, clothes, like if you buy, say, a suit for work, right? I don't wear a suit for work, but you do. Like I think you could easily justify paying decent money for a good suit because you're wearing it like- two, three times a week, every single day. Whereas you think about, say, your passion is golf, right? You're playing golf for only four hours a week. Yeah. But if your satisfaction from golf is 10 times more than the satisfaction from wearing a suit, obviously that comes into the equation. Yeah. But if you pass everything through that weird money, time, satisfaction The justification for it. Yeah. It's like when people are sort of decluttering their wardrobe or something and they go, have I worn this in the last two years? No, well, it's a ski jacket. I haven't been skiing for two years. Okay, I'll keep it. It's a T-shirt. I wear T-shirts all the time, but I haven't worn that one for two years. Get rid of it. You know, take it to Vinny's. Or sort of, yeah, why am I spending money on something? It's like I respect those people who have a uniform, like the unofficial uniform, like they wear the same black jeans, the same black boots. Oh, okay. Okay. Let's circle back to this. I really want to hear a opinion on this because I've been thinking of doing this myself. So, yeah. let's just tie a bow on the dating stuff. My theory is with those dating sites that for what you're getting for your money, it's a bargain and people should be spending more money than they currently are. And if they can meet the person of their dreams- Particularly, they're getting older too, and obviously, if you're a female, there's more well, pressure in terms from, of. From what kids. I understand, from not having ever been a user of this service, but like Tinder, I think Tinder now is just really a young person's thing, and it's totally out of control. And if you're actually in your 30s, wanting to meet people to go on a few dates with, see if you like them, go on a few more dates, see if you really like them, you know try and get a, some longevity out of a relationship. It's just not for you at all. And the only way to meet people is through, you know, mutual connections or work where most people seem to meet people. You know what I mean? Actually, I don't understand this. If I was trying to meet someone living in a city as big as Sydney, for example, for a start, if I was single now and fingers crossed that doesn't happen in the nearby future, but I'd be ruthless. I'd treat dating like the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss. Yeah. I'd be like, right. I'm not going to date beyond these suburbs. Yep. That's not a snobbish thing. That's just yep. being entirely pragmatic. I'd say, right, I live near the CBD of Sydney. I'm not going to date within uh, beyond two-kilometer radius because, frankly, I don't know how I'd be able to get to that person's house and vice versa or whatever. I try to set a friend of mine up with uh, my beloved's friend. To this day, I think they were really compatible and suitable. But their postcodes weren't? One lived on the northern beaches. One lived in the uh, inner south. And the Northern Beaches one was like, it's probably not worth setting me up because (laughs) I'm probably not going to travel that far. But it's so practical. In cities like Los Angeles, Sydney, where traffic is such a big deal and you just can't afford to spend like 45 minutes, one hour commuting backwards and forwards, Mm. you've got to be ruthless. You've got to basically say, I'm only a date in these four postcodes. And that's it, yeah. which basically means you'd rule out 95% of the other gender straight away. Yeah. <laughs> then you're probably not going to be as choosy because if you're choosing between all the women in, in your city, you know, okay, fine. It's going to take you a while to cull them all down. But as you say, if you're in that little microcosm where you want to be or you're happily going to date in that sort of area, I think you'll, I don't know, I suppose it could go both ways. Well, you know, actually, that's 
what Tinder really is. Tinder is basically many people who are close to you in proximity at a bar. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean those people at the bar are locals, but if you're, let's say, at a local type bar, not a CBD bar, but a beach bar or something, there's probably a good chance the person at the bar might live in the area. And so, therefore, at least you're meeting people just through the app yeah. who live nearby. And you know that if you go to one bar instead of another bar, there's a girl there who you're remotely compatible with and what has said that they'll, they like you on Tinder and you like them. Is that how it works? This is so funny. This is like you talking about Snapchat, like a <laughs> whole bloke discussing it. Um, put it this way. I know you meant to swipe one way and not yeah, the other the, way. The, the key that swipe, we- Swipe right. Is that good? See, I was going to say, the key to us not knowing anything about Tinder is that we're not sure which swipe is the rejection or acceptance. So, I can't recall which is which. Before Tinder, there was RSVP. And I think uh, we were saying before, RSVP is the one that costs 25 bucks a year, maybe. One of those, yeah. yeah. And a friend of mine had a profile on RSVP. And for some reason, his profile picture was a picture of the two of us. You and him? Yeah. (laughs) Like, both of our heads fairly equal sized in the frame. This was a while ago. So, I guess it was before people had a lot of photos of themselves on phones and things. Yeah, before selfies. Yeah, so you probably didn't have great accessibility to a lot of photos of yourself. Maybe before camera phones, I can't remember. Take it with a Polaroid. <laughs> <laughs> he got matched with a friend of my beloved's on this dating site. Oh, hang on. I know where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> have I told you this before? No. <laughs> and she rings beloved and says, oh, my God. <laughs> Your man's on the RSVP dating side. I just got, he just came up as someone I might be compatible with. But is that like sort of passing off? It's like these people who have some fake Google image of some celebrity or something as their Tinder profile. Yeah, there's a whole theory though on the psychology behind people who use profile pictures with other people. It's kind of like using bait. So you put yourself next to your attractive friend. Yeah. And it's like, well, if you kind of, it's like two for the price of one. It's like, yeah. well, their friend's attractive, so I guess they're attractive or but by endorsement, they're pretty cool. Yeah, but also you don't know which one is which, right? Yeah, I would never actually take that bait yeah. because if I didn't know I had a guarantee as to who that face was, not interested. It, it, it's too weird. I'm thinking, okay, are you serious about dating? A photograph of you and your mate or you and your girlfriend a great time at Luna Park and New Year's Eve. How serious are you about trying to find someone? Because I actually don't know which one is which. Not interested. It should be a photo. If Swipe you're, left or right or up or so down. So, you're saying if you're a woman, it should be a photo of you giving a massage to someone or a photo of you cooking a great dinner or- For you, it'd be at the football <laughs> with a beanie on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With your favourite team oh, and a scarf. Or oh, lining up a putt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Trying to read a, <laughs> trying trying to read a tricky putt. <laughs> yeah. For me, it'd be a woman holding a popcorn at the movie theatre. Yeah. A fellow cinephile. Yeah. yeah. Bad Mums 3. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, it'd be Sicario 3. <laughs> Sicario 3. <laughs> I know your secret pleasures. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, my advice here would be what happens next? I think spend the money and go big or go home. Eliminate your competition. Yeah. By paying the extra 25. Exactly. Now, I want to jump to the next topic, which we just touched on earlier, which was this whole idea of having a uniform. Like, I think Steve Jobs is probably the most famous person who had a recognizable 
set of clothes that he wore consistently, like not the same clothes, but several black T-shirts, several blue jeans. Skivvies. Several white shoes. Didn't he have sk- didn't he wear skivvies or polo necks? No, they were, yeah, you're right. They were always black T-shirts or black skivvies, blue jeans, and I think they were white- White trainers? New Balance or Asics? Uh, yeah, white trainers. Yeah. So, he did this when he was following, I think it was, he was influenced by some Japanese designers or Japanese minimalists or maybe even Japanese military. But that's where the original idea came from because he was into a degree of simplicity with design. But also, you save time. You That's why it's you know, a lot to be said for having a uniform. I mean, remember when you were a kid at school and it was once a month Mufti Day to raise money for a charity or something and you were like, what do I wear? What do I wear so I don't get bullied? If I wear that shirt, you know, I've got to wear the, the one cool branded shirt that I own. It's the one advantage of private schools or schools with uniforms versus public schools where it's free for all. Yeah. That everyone's kind of neutral and you're all wearing the same green shirt or blue blazer or yep. red jumper or whatever it is. And when you think about it, kids get picked on enough because- they wear shorts and long socks instead of the long pants or they wear the cheap school shoes instead of the Doc Martens or whatever, you know. I mean, kids are just freaking ruthless. You just dated yourself again with the reference to the 1990s Doc, Doc Martens. Doc Martens. But I agree, though, in relation to the simplicity of that. Barack Obama apparently only had two suits. I think it was a grey suit and a blue suit. He justified it as he had so many decisions to make in his day Yeah. Take one out. It's a time saver. Yeah. But here's the thing. So, I've been recently, as we've touched upon in the past, experimenting with minimalism. You can experience or practice minimalism in so many areas like your food, your fashion, technology, digital minimalism as to how many services you use and pay for, etc. When it comes to clothes, what I've noticed about minimalism with clothes is that you naturally creep towards having a uniform because you strip away variety and you tend to then gravitate towards something that looks similar, which is generally black. <laughs> yeah. Basically- if you think about it, right, if you white gets stained too easily and so on, you can't wear it more than once. If you've got black, like, you know, a cliched artist or filmmaker, right, you wear the same black pants or black jeans or not the same ones necessarily, but the same model. Mm-hmm. You can wear that, you dress them up, dress them down, yep. anywhere. Same with black boots, black shoes, same thing. Black T-shirt, kind of the same. Like a black T-shirt can look much smarter and you can dress with, say, a jacket and walk into a variety of functions much more easily than, say, a very distinctive printed colored T-shirt. So I'm actually wondering how far I take this because if I push it the whole way, I will then be stripping away clothes like I'm wearing right now. So right now I'm wearing a blue and gray striped V-neck shirt, V-neck jumper with a red T-shirt. And you, on contrast, are wearing pretty much the minimalist dream, which is <laughs> yep. a black long sleeve shirt with a grey T-shirt. And grey is the other alternative to black. And that you can basically wear anywhere. You could be wearing that tonight at the theatre, at a work event, at the pub, and get away with it regardless. Whereas mine, less so. Black just looks smarter, but also can look cooler more easily than any other colour. Yeah, people sort of tend to recognise... Oh, he's wearing that stripy jumper again. Totally. But they, but they don't go, oh, he's wearing that black jumper again. Yeah. Black go, just blends but in. They go, might not be the same black jumper, might be yeah. a different black jumper. Yeah. Well, the nature of a black shirt too is, or a black jumper or a black pullover is even if it has detail like lapels or buttons or pockets, you can't quite see them because it's black. 
So you're not going to think, oh, yeah, I saw him with that same jacket with those lapels last time. Because being black, it all kind of blends in. Yeah. If it was like a khaki, military style sports jacket, you go, yeah, he always wears that same khaki sports jacket. That anorak. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, I'm thinking about doing it. I think there's a lot to be said for it. Yeah. I bought these black camper kind of sneaker boots I'm wearing right now, and they are- I notice them. They're they're awesome. While they're great, they're comfy, but I can actually- I found with these, they're perfect traveling shoes because you can wear them with pants and a jacket or with jeans, and they go in- they blend in anywhere. And they're comfortable enough that you can wear them all day. You walk around like sightseeing all day and be fine, and then you can just basically throw a jacket on with a pair of black trousers or chinos and walk into, say, a restaurant, and they- because they're black shoes, right? They just blend in. Yeah. You buy these black- Leather Converse. What's that classic pair of Converse ones? Chuck Taylors. Chuck Taylors. You buy these black Chuck Taylors, same thing. They're not quite as comfy, Mm. but being black leather too, they kind of blend in a bit. And you wear those with like jeans, walk around a city all day sightseeing. Well, I'm looking forward to I mean, what happens next? I'm looking forward to the the minimalist Benny just in the neutral tones, the blacks, the whites, the greys. Oh, yeah. It's going to be interesting, just these pearly whites to- um. Brighten the mood. The problem with it is, is that you then justify all the stuff in your wardrobe that you've already spent good money on. Because you do have a lot of red T-shirts as well. Got quite a few red T-shirts, bright T-shirts. Got the reds, the purples, the yellows, the reds. Uh, Usually kind of like trendy style hipster prints. T-shirts are bought from, what's that T-shirt company online called? Yeah, I was was just thinking that. Threadless. Threadless, yeah. Threadless, US company. But- I don't know. What I think I'll, what I think I'll do is- so, I'll, Same for rainy day. No, what I'll do is I'll basically wait for stuff to wear out mm. and through natural attrition. Yeah. As I throw stuff out, I will then either not replace it or replace it with black mm. and see how we go. Just black, not even greys and whites, just black. Yeah. I think black's greys, the occasional white. I know what to get you for Christmas. Yeah, the occasional just white. A, just three pack of black t-shirts. <laughs> That's right. And the three pack of black undies, <laughs> the pack of three socks. Yeah. So, what happens next is I will be going down the sort of Steve Jobs route, but with black instead. Communist. A communi- <laughs> communist Steve Jobs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Can I convince you to join me or you're a man of too many colours? I'm already Mr. Neutral. I'm neutralising things, definitely. So, you're wearing less prints on T-shirts and stuff, aren't you? Yeah. And work shirts and work ties are very much just blue stripes and blues. So, I'm actually out of the fashion game right now. What's the current- We're in 2018 now. What's the current trend for shirts and ties? Is it plain, stripes, prints, thin ties, wide ties? Thin, Definitely thin ties. Thin ties? Yeah. I I haven't gone the whole way with the thin ties. It's definitely thinner than it used to be, but- But not quite as thin as a madman 1960s style. No, but some people are going there, definitely. Yeah. And shirts, are they- Is it fashion stripes, checks, or- Plain. Both, I'd say less French cuffs, smaller collars. Okay. Tips from the uh, super coach <laughs> yeah, there, there the, the fashion guru. All right. So, what happens next is I'll be going down the road of increasingly black and we'll watch this space and you can judge my road to minimalism I'm, as we go. I'm looking forward to all the creative podcast topics you're going to come up with with the extra five minutes you have every morning. You don't, <laughs> have, to wonder, you don't have to think about what to wear. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's put a bow on this bad boy. You can catch me on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Patreon as Ben Phelps. And Phil remains hidden. See you, mate.